Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Pem Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapies. Your host is Dr. Lee Friedman. Given the multitude of concerns a cancer survivor must deal with, sexual dysfunction is not always taken into account. How common are sexual issues after cancer treatment, and how can we deal with them? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Puneet Mason, Director of the Male Fertility Program and Assistant Professor of Virology at Penn Medicine and the University of Pennsylvania Hospitals. Dr. Mason, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Could you perhaps start by telling us, uh, in terms of the patients that you see in your practice, what are some of the concerns and challenges that cancer survivors face? Sure. So my practice is as relatively focused in the sense that, you know, much of what I do is male fertility and sexual medicine. So, you know, we also do a fair amount of oncofertility here at Penn and, and uh, fertility preservation for cancer survivors. So the largest concern that I do see for cancer survivors that walk into my clinic is basically either fertility-related or, or sexual-related. With, with fertility specifically, you know, a lot of people that are, that are young, that are diagnosed with cancer, basically men between the ages of 20 and 45, you know, have a five-year survival of greater than 75%. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for this group of young, mainly, uh, you know, childbearing ages, the men that are in this group, fertility is a major concern for them. You know, fortunately, we are doing a better job of addressing that concern prior to uh, any type of treatment for their cancer because a lot of their treatments may, you know, diminish their reproductive capacity either temporarily or permanently. So for those patients specifically, it's very important that that conversation starts early and uh, we discuss, you know, their fertility as an important part of their survivorship. And then we also take steps for them to preserve their fertility, either through sperm banking, where they just come in and produce a semen sample and we freeze it and keep it forever long they want, or, you know, other ways such as surgical sperm extraction with cryopreservation. And that's very important because when these men do survive their cancer and are ready to produce families and so forth, this is something that is incredibly important in their lives. And sometimes just the concept of doing this is the only bit of good news they're even receiving during the processes of diagnosis and beginning their treatment. So it's incredibly important. So that's just my plug about fertility. Now, with regards to sexual function, these are patients that I basically see afterwards. And uh, your average sexual dysfunction patient is your male, but typically after the age of 40, they may have had some type of pelvic surgery or has gotten, you know, various treatments for their cancer, some of which may alter their hormonal profile. And sexual medicine is incredibly important to these patients. You know, they find that, you know, their erections are not nearly as strong as they were before. They find that sometimes they're not able to even have erections. Additionally, orgasm, ejaculation, those things are diminished or absent. And uh, there's also a huge impact on their desire. And, you know, when it comes to these patients, it's important to address every single aspect of their sexual functioning because every single aspect is an incredibly important part of their survivorship, particularly when it comes to their quality of life. Absolutely. So you, it sounds like you think of uh, your patients really in two groups. One is the fertility group, and the other is uh, where fertility is not so much of an issue but more sexual functioning. Yes, absolutely. I cannot even tell you. Just the fertility group alone, I can't tell you how many times I see patients in my clinic. My last patient actually was someone that is getting treatment for leukemia and was never offered sperm banking. And unfortunately, he's two months into treatment. This is not something that we can offer him right now because you know, he's actively getting chemo at this moment. But it's very important to address these concerns for patients preoperatively or pre-treatment, I would say. And at Penn, is this a routine part of treatment for specific cancers or for all, all cancers that someone like you would meet with these patients? Yeah, absolutely. 
a fertility preservation consult is just like any other important consult. Now, for these patients, many times with the with the new diagnosis of cancer, especially in a man of, of that's young, of, you know, childbearing ages, there's so much insanity that's going on in their lives. With this new diagnosis, what to do, just the just the word cancer gives many times people an emotional sort of like shutdown where they can't almost process anything else um, because of the ramifications of that and and uh, what we know about it. So for these patients, it's so important to introduce the concept of fertility uh, seamlessly into their treatment plan so that they can concentrate on their treatment itself and not worry about that. Many times this is the only bit of good news that we give these patients and it really offers them a sense of hope that there is something, you know, at the end of at the end of this journey. Yeah, I can imagine that psychologically uh, getting to think about that part of their their journey uh, it has to be a very big psychological lift. Right, absolutely. And the thing is that like, you know, a lot of times cancers of young men such as testicular cancer or, or lymphomas or leukemias, these are, you know, fertility, these are young guys in their, like, you know, 20s. For, for them, for many of them, fertility may not be anything that's on the agenda for, for years, if not decades. Um, nonetheless, it is important to have that conversation and offer them resources to preserve their fertility. There was a study that was done recently by the, I mean, recently, a few years ago by the American Society of Clinical Oncology, where only 25% of men of childbearing ages were even offered mm. banking. So even though fertility is a concern for 75% of patients in that age range. So, you know, for that reason alone, it's really important that we increase awareness and offer them this resource because it is such an important part of their survivorship. Dr. Mason, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of this process. Uh, when should semen be collected in terms of timing of therapy? How long is the semen viable? And what's the success rate uh, when someone does decide they want to use the specimen? You know, it may take up to several years for sperm production to recover after cancer treatment. And sometimes sterility may be permanent for these patients. You know, so for this reason, it's important for all men who are interested in becoming fathers to freeze their sperm at either a fertility center or a sperm bank prior to any cancer treatment. These samples can be stored for many years and used later for either something called insemination or in vitro fertilization. And uh, those are options for people that desire to achieve a pregnancy with their frozen specimen. Now, the thing is that what we also tell patients is something called reproductive, is the entire concept of reproductive safety. And that is because of theoretical damage to sperm after receiving any type of chemotherapy. That type of damage has been shown to persist for many months and sometimes even up to one year after receiving uh, some type of uh, chem chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So for that reason, we ask or highly recommend that our patients use contraception for one year following uh, any type of chemotherapy or radiation therapy to basically practice something called reproductive safety. Mm -hmm. Now, after that, uh, you know, we offer these men um, an evaluation. They can come in and, you know, see one of us and produce a semen sample and make sure that everything is okay and try to achieve a pregnancy through natural means. Now, if their parameters are not that favorable, we do have frozen sperm that can be used, or if they're permanently sterile, that they can use, you know, to achieve a pregnancy. So that's why it's so important, because in the event that sterility does ensue following cancer treatment, um, and that could be sterility from chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, you know, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. used to have the option of using their frozen sperm, which can be stored for years, if not decades. That is very interesting. And, and have you seen any increase in terms of birth defects or other problems with stored sperm? Not that we have seen. You know, there was some concern that, you know, in the, in the 
beginnings of various forms of assisted reproductive techniques, such as mutual fertilization, that there was that type of concern. You know, there is a slightly higher complication rate with those modalities, but, you know, patients undergo a formal counseling process about that. I can't really speak on the specifics of the in vitro fertilization. Um, I would defer that to one of my reproductive endocrinology colleagues. But, you know, this is something that is incredibly effective. We do use this very commonly for patients, you know, particularly cancer survivors, both men and women, to achieve pregnancy following their treatment. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Puneet Mason, Director of Male Fertility and Assistant Professor of Urology at Penn Medicine. Uh, Dr. Mason, why don't we turn from fertility to uh, post-cancer treatment sexual dysfunction? What type of options do we have, let's say, if there is a low testosterone? Is that safe in a cancer survivor? So, you know, there are patients that may have low testosterone just as part of a chronic health condition called hypogonadism. And that's similar to something like hypertension or diabetes. It is a chronic health condition. And uh, it's important to recognize that versus just natural aging. Now, there are certain men that may have, you know, low testosterone following cancer treatment, and they can be divided into two groups. There are certain groups, such as patients that have prostate cancer, that are treated with androgen deprivation therapy. Now, in those patients, we do medically lower their testosterone, and that's a very different population of people with low testosterone than a patient that may have had some type of uh, central radiation therapy or, or other types of treatments that may alter their HPG access, which is important for testosterone production. If a man has low testosterone, uh, there are various options for these patients because these patients may be symptomatic. And by symptoms, I mean you know low energy, low libido, issues with sexual functioning, decrease in muscle mass, decrease in strength, decrease in concentration, depressed mood, and so forth. So if a man's having any of these types of symptoms following cancer treatment, it's very important they do get... Uh, they see, you know, their physician and do have their hormones evaluated because there are treatment options available for them that can restore their testosterone levels to basically give them a better, you know, sense of health and also quality of life. Now, patients that are treated with androgen deprivation therapy for, for prostate cancer, for, for example, would not be candidates for testosterone replacement therapy because that's part of their treatment process. Absolutely. That, that makes perfect sense. And besides low testosterone, I imagine that there are several other either physiologic or psychological uh, issues with sexual dysfunction after cancer treatment. What are some of the things that you see? So in terms of, I would say the most common, for men, the most common thing that we do see is erectile dysfunction. And, um, you know, these are men, you know, particularly my patient population includes patients that undergo pelvic surgery, such as, you know, having their prostate removed or uh, their bladders removed or, you know, some type of colorectal surgery, but also patients that are treated with radiation therapy for prostate cancer, so to speak. And in these patients, you know, we're doing a better job, actually, of asking them about their erections, you know, post-treatment. And not when I say better job, I don't necessarily mean me. I mean the, the, either the urologist, the oncologist, the radiation oncologist, and so forth. We do address that. But what's important to remember is that there are other factors that may negatively affect their sexual function after some type of uh, pelvic cancer therapy. And these include psychological issues, age, health-related competing risks for erectile dysfunction, such as you know, various other comorbidities, body image, particularly in patients that may undergo surgery and have a colostomy or some type of uh, an ileal conduit for, for urine collection, partner response, change in life course, you know, other things that you know, their sexual priorities may have received less attention nowadays than before. So we are doing a better job about asking about their erections and so forth, but it's very important to address these other concerns. 
Now, as urologists, we have done a lot over time in terms of modifying our approach to cancer surgery. You know, there are better nerve-sparing options for people that have their prostate removed, for example. Um, and that has been shown to basically lead to improved outcomes with regards to their sexual function, particularly their erections post-op. But we also need to target these other, you know, source factors of rectal dysfunction and sexual dysfunction to really optimize patient recovery post-op. I mean, and also after, you know, treatment for their cancer. And uh, to that end, do you involve sex therapists? Do you involve psychiatrists, uh, things of that nature? Yeah, no, that's very important. We do. We have actually four sex therapists that we routinely refer patients to um, to basically address, you know, psychogenic aspect to their sexual dysfunction. And also, it's a lot of cognitive and behavioral therapy that goes into it as well. And we encourage involvement of their partner and so forth. That doesn't really happen all over the place. You know, a recent study that was done, um, you know, in prostate cancer survivors, you know, in Michigan basically showed that only 4% of these patients are even referred to sexual therapy. Mm. And that's such an important part of their treatment algorithm. You know, and patients that do see someone like that anecdotally do benefit. But it's very important to involve them as opposed to other things in terms of improving their sexual response and function and overall quality of life. Are there particular resources either for patients or physicians if we are practicing in a, an environment that's not quite as advanced as Penn Medicine and doesn't put as much focus on these issues? Yeah, there are many foundations that all have websites, you know, and organizations that have websites to, to basically provide people with information on this. Um, you know, off the top of my head, the American Cancer Society has, you know, their website alone has a lot of excellent information. There's a great booklet on there, basically, that's online that involves, you know, sexuality for a man with cancer. There are certain foundations, such as the Livestrong Foundation, that has information as well. There's the Uncle Fertility Consortium that has a lot of excellent information, uh, particularly with a focus on fertility for cancer survivors. And that's just to name a few. Dr. Mason, you mentioned some of the nerve-sparing techniques specifically for prostate cancer surgery. In that group of patients, is there any role for early introduction of some of the erectile dysfunction medications to preserve or regain erectile function? Right. So the integrity of an erection basically depends on having intact nerves, arteries, and veins. And, you know, even though a nerve-sparing operation is performed, you know, you can still have a little bit of trauma to nerves. You know, even though they're spared and not cut, you can still have trauma to them just as a result of surgery. And that takes some time to heal. So what we do um, basically is something called early introduction of various mechanisms to achieve an erection. And for some people, it's something as simple as introducing a PD-5 inhibitor. Um, and those are medications like Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, and Stendra, which is one of the newer ones on the market. The goal that we have for our patients is basically aim for three erections a week because we want to ensure that good blood flow comes to the penis because that helps preserve the integrity of the penile tissues that are important for erections. Now, if the medications are not doing the trick, there are other options. There is a vacuum device, which is an external device that one can put on the penis. There's a band that one wears around the penis, and that basically works through negative pressure to bring blood flow into the penis, and the band preserves the storage retaining capacity of the penis to help maintain an erection. There are also injectable agents that we commonly give to patients that they give themselves basically using the smallest needle they've ever seen in their entire life mm -hmm. directly to their penis to achieve an erection. And both of these mechanisms, the vacuum device and the injections, both of these options basically depend on intact good blood flow to the penis. There are also penile prosthetics, which are surgeries that we do to basically put in a penile implant as another option for patients that are having difficulty achieving an erection but many times we do that, you know, several months, not years after definitive treatment for their cancer therapy. But what I always tell patients is that it might take up to a year and a half 
before you have any type of regain of sexual functioning, particularly erectile dysfunction, following treatment for pelvic surgery or other major treatment for cancer. So we need to have some patience along with these other therapies, and uh, hopefully some function will come back. Yeah, and it's also important to involve the partner and basically find a working solution for them through this process. It can be very frustrating if if uh, someone is just trying this and they're not getting any type of benefit. So I think early education is very important. Partner involvement is very important during all of this. And Dr. Mason, is there any take-home message that you would give to our listeners who are treating patients who are either contemplating uh, treatment for cancers or are cancer survivors? I, I would I would tell everyone that, you know, sexual functioning and fertility are very, very important aspects of survivorship. And they're very important for patients' quality of life. And it's, it's important to address those concerns because many times patients may not bring those up. They may be afraid to ask about it. They may think that why would the doctor even want to hear about these concerns when we should really be focusing on the cancer itself and survivorship. And I think it's important as a physician or, prim- or provider to introduce these questions or address these concerns with patients, and you will be surprised at what you hear. And there are options to help everyone get better. Dr. Mason, thank you so much for being with us and for outlining for us uh, some of the issues involved, both with fertility and sexual dysfunction for cancer patients. This has been a very important uh, uh, messages that you've given to our audience, and I thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me anytime. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash pen and visit Penn Physician Link an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Penn. Here you can find education resources, information about our expedited referral process, and communication tools. To learn more, visit www.pennmedicine.org slash physician link. Thank you for listening.